Well, I'll tell you what, guys. Did you know that this is a holiday weekend? Did you, are you aware of that? It's a holiday weekend, and it's freezing cold outside, and yet for some reason, you strange people chose to leave your warm beds and come out and worship Jesus. So thank you so much for being here. Give yourselves a round of applause. Thank you for being here today. Really appreciate your presence with us. Um, as a lot of you know, or most of you know, we have been doing this thing since the fall that we're calling the Jesus Series. We have been going through the life of Jesus in a mostly chronological order since the fall, taking a look at what Jesus did and what he said, and we're doing this as other people about who Jesus is, to share Jesus with other people, and so that's why we're doing this thing, going through the life of Jesus, and so you're reading these passages throughout the week, you're showing up here on Sunday morning, and we're talking about something that you've read during the week, and that's what we're doing as a church, this Jesus series, and before you know it, this series will be over, this ends in May, but... Just so you know, after we're finished this series, we're going to keep talking about Jesus because that's what churches do, right? Amen? Amen. Amen. That's what churches do. Got a story for you this morning. About uh, 20 years ago here in Delaware County, uh, there were three churches that all existed within about a, a 2.5 mile radius of one another. And these three churches had two things in common. The first thing they had in common was they were all the same denomination. And that's a pretty wild fact in and of itself. I mean, three churches, same denomination in that small radius. The second thing that these two churches, these three churches had in common is that they were all shrinking, all right? These were churches that were struggling. The attendance was down. The congregations were shrinking. And so these churches were having a difficult time uh, making ends meet and finding people to run the programs and finding people to show up at the programs and paying the bills and paying their staff. And so you had three struggling churches, all the same denomination, now, I had friends at two of those churches, and I found out that there was an idea among these three churches, and the idea was, hey, why don't we all three combine? We could put three of our congregations together. We can put those three congregations in one building. We're all the same denomination. We're all reading from the same Bible. We're all using the same hymnals. We're all singing the same songs. We're all doing the same types of programs. So why don't we three combine then we'll have more resources, more human resources to lead the programs, more financial resources to actually be able to keep the lights on and, and pay the staff. And so this idea was batted around, and I found out about this idea, and I thought it sounded great. I mean, that just makes sense to me practically. That's awesome. You can combine, and you could sell off those two properties, and then you can be a, a strong, thriving church. Sounded great to me, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen. There was some logistics that they just couldn't work through, and there were some people thinking, yeah, we can do this, but I'm not going to leave my church building. I mean, I grew up here, and my parents grew up here, and my grandparents grew up here, and so, yeah, we can do this as long as we move into my building. And so there were some issues like that, and then there were some bigger issues like, okay, well, if we're combining, we don't need three senior pastors, so who's getting fired, right? <laughs> Some very difficult decisions would have to be made. And so they decided not to go forward with this plan, not to combine because it was just too difficult. And so even though things weren't great in any of these churches, they decided we're just going to preserve the status quo. Let's just keep on doing what we're doing. It's not great, but let's just keep on doing what we're doing. Now, I'll tell you that all these years later, those three churches have all they're all dead, but I don't know if combining back 20 years ago, if that would have saved them or not, I, I don't know. All I know is a decision was made, let's not combine because it's just, it's just too difficult. Let's maintain the status quo. Let's preserve the peace. Let's not lead ourselves to make these difficult 
decisions. That's how we human beings can be sometimes. You know, even if our lives aren't fantastic, if they're good enough, and even if there are some problems, we can ignore those problems. You know what? Things are, are good enough. Let's just maintain the status quo. You think about our history as a nation and those years leading up to the Revolutionary War. We had some colonists that were loyal to the crown, right? The loyalists. And we look backward in time and we think, well, those people were cowards and those people were villains. And how could they be loyal to England? And they were being taxed and it was unfair and they didn't have their freedom. And how could they be loyal to the crown? But you think about it. I mean, how many of those people who were British loyalists just didn't want to get into the mess of a war? And I know things aren't great. And I know we're being taxed without representation. And I know we're being taxed unfairly. By the way, can you imagine what it's like to be taxed unfairly? Can anybody imagine what that's like? Is this thing on? Okay. <laughs> We're being taxed unfairly and it's unjust and like the crown isn't great, but like things are good enough. I don't want to go to war. I don't want to send my sons off to war where they'll probably, against England, they'll probably get killed. It's just too messy. Can't we just maintain the status quo? Don't underestimate. <laughs> don't underestimate that desire within the human spirit. Just let's not get messy. Let's preserve the status quo. Even if things aren't great, we just don't want things to get worse. We're afraid of changing things. We can be afraid of change. Change can be tough. Change can be messy. When we look back at the life of Jesus and we see the opposition that he faced and we see that the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees that made up the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling council, and we can see the priests and the scribes and all these people that made up the Jewish religious establishment, they looked at Jesus, they saw his miracles, and they rejected him. And it's so easy for us who are modern-day Christians, we look back and we can vilify those Pharisees. We can vilify those people. And they can say, we can say about them, well, they saw Jesus face to face and they did not recognize that he was the Messiah. They saw the miracles. I mean, some of them are right there witnessing the miracles and they rejected Jesus. They're the bad guys. Sure, we could say that. Sure, we can. It's so difficult for us though, to go back and try and diagnose what was going on in their hearts. What was the motivation behind why they rejected Jesus? And it's complicated. I mean, you, had, you certainly had some jealousy that was in the mix. I mean, here's this Jesus, and Jesus is pulling people away from, from their teachings and, and leading them. And so there was some jealousy that was in the mix. But you also had potentially some, some genuine concern. Because here's this Jesus, and a lot of what he's doing looks like blasphemy, and a lot of what he's saying sounds like blasphemy, and so maybe there was some genuine concern, like, this guy is leading the people astray. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they rejected Jesus. But there's this other factor. That's a big factor, I think. You see, back in those days, the people, the Israelites, they had this very fragile peace with Rome, with their political oppressor. And so many of these Pharisees, they did not want to disturb that peace. They did not want to risk war. They did not want to risk being, you know, punished by Rome. And so they see this man, Jesus, and they hear what he has to say, and, and they just wanted to preserve the peace because, like, it's really fun, guys, to talk about a Messiah. It's fun to think about, hey, won't it be great when the Messiah comes? And they talked about the Messiah, and they thought that was a wonderful thing, and it's fun to talk about, but all of a sudden he shows up, and it's like, ooh, now what? <laughs> what are we going to do with this Messiah. Today we're going to take a look at one of the most well-known miracles that Jesus performs, in a lot of ways the, the biggest miracle that Jesus performs before his own resurrection. And we're going to take a look specifically at how the religious establishment responds to this miracle. 
you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open it up or your Bible app. We're going to be in the book of John, chapter 11. We'll be reading about the resurrection of Lazarus. All right. Again, if you've spent enough time in church or you went to Sunday school as a kid, you've heard this story before. You've at least heard some pieces of this story. So we're going to take a look at this miracle, and we're going to see how the religious establishment, how the Pharisees respond to this miracle. To set the stage here, Jesus is, is doing a teaching time. He's about two days away from Bethany. Bethany is where Lazarus lived. Now, Lazarus lived with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. They were all in the same house or very close to each other, maybe in like some kind of a neighborhood together, or if not the same house. And there are some things that we know about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. We know that they were friends with Jesus, right? Not part of the 12 disciples, but this trio of siblings, they were friends with Jesus. They were people of some means. They had some wealth. They were able to feed all of the disciples when they showed up at their house. It is possible that Lazarus and his sisters may have financially supported Jesus in his ministry. We don't know that for sure, but we know that Jesus relied on support from others as he was engaging in his mission work. And we know they were friends. Like I said, they were close. They loved each other. He cared. Jesus cared about this trio of siblings. They had a personal relationship. And so Jesus is two days away from Lazarus, and Lazarus gets sick, like very sick. And so Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus, hey, Jesus, the one you love, your buddy Lazarus, is sick. And when those messengers went to Jesus to give him those, that news, there was an anticipation, there was an expectation that Jesus would stop what he was doing and go follow, go back to Bethany to heal Lazarus. And so Jesus finds out that his friend is sick, and he makes a decision to stay right where he is for a couple more days. And if you read through John chapter 11, and a lot of you did this past week, if you read through that, you can see that it's so intentional what Jesus is doing here. And he's very overt about it. He's very candid about it. He is setting the stage for this miracle. Very candid about this. And so he stays where he is. I'm in uh, John chapter 11, starting with verse 11. Then he said after, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And so the disciples were listening to Jesus talk about Lazarus. He says Lazarus is sleeping, and they think he means literal sleep. And they say, Jesus, well, if he's sleeping, let the man sleep, right? Let him rest so he can get better. And then Jesus has to tell them, no, I'm not talking about literal sleep. Lazarus is dead. Verse 14, Lazarus is dead, Jesus says. Then verse 15, look at what Jesus says. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. What? I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so they go to where Jesus is, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that, that he'd already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. And you wonder why. One of the sisters, they responded, let me go out to see Jesus. Another says, I got to stay where I am. I don't, don't want to go out. And so Martha goes out to Jesus and listen to these words that she says to him. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, we know who you are. We know what you're capable of. 
we told you he was sick. And if you just would have showed up when we needed you, Jesus, if you just would have showed up when we needed you, my brother would not have died. And so it's very tricky to read tone into these words, and it's very, I should say, potentially dangerous to read tone into these words, but here are the words of his sister who has lost her brother. Sadness, perhaps frustration, perhaps anger, but also, as we read on also, faith. And so she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Still faith there. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so there's Martha talking with Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, don't worry, he will rise again. And Martha says, yes, 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 I know that there will be this day of resurrection where we all will rise again. I know that, Jesus. Thank you for those words. I get it, right? And so here's the thing about those of us who believe that Jesus can do all things. Sometimes, even though we say that, sometimes even though we have this belief, God can do all things. Sometimes, just internally and mentally, we put these boundaries, we put these limits on God. And so Martha says, thank you for that reminder, Jesus. I know we'll all be resurrected one day. Thank you for that. So I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus says to her, and don't miss this, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. Martha, you're thinking about the resurrection as an event, as a day, as something that will happen in the future. Let me just explain this. I am the resurrection. You go through the Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you read these statements that Jesus makes about himself explaining who he is. He is the door. He is the gate that we pass through to enter into heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is the resurrection. It's not just something that he does, resurrecting us. It's who he is. Jesus is the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asked that question of Martha. Do you, do you believe this? That everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And I think Jesus asks us the same question. Hey, people of Hope Community Church, do you believe this? Do you be oh, somebody does. Do you believe this? That's the question that Jesus asks. And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, you know, that Messiah we've been waiting for. You are that hero. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up and quickly she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in a place where Martha met him. Friends, Jesus is very deliberately orchestrating these details. He is setting the stage for a miracle. He is preparing to make an entrance. He is preparing to do something very big, very bold, very public. Now, consider what we've seen up to this point in the life of Jesus. He has performed many miracles, but most of them, small audience, small group, not in public. And how many times does Jesus heal someone and say, shh, don't tell anybody that I've done this? How many times have we seen Jesus do this? 
Not the case with this miracle. In fact, fun fact for you, Jesus, he's already raised two other people from the dead. But it was small, and it was quiet, and only a few people witnessed it. But here, he's setting the stage, getting ready to make his grand entrance. And so Martha had told Mary that Jesus is there. Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And so now an audience is being collected, is being gathered. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, we just heard this from her sister, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, this isn't the point of today's sermon, but I think about how often we Christians feel the same way. And we're praying for something, we're praying for a miracle, we're praying for a healing, we're praying for some kind of a, a situation to be resolved, and we know that Jesus has the power to solve that problem or create that healing, and He just doesn't show up the way that we want Him to. And sometimes in my heart I feel like saying this very same thing, Jesus, if you just showed up the way that I wanted you to, I would not be in this situation. Church, have you ever felt that way? Well, that's what they're going through right now. But God has a bigger plan and a better plan. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, two words, Jesus wept. Uh, why does Jesus weep? <laughs> What's he crying about? Jesus knows what's going to happen next. He's got the whole thing planned out. He knows that Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead. So why is he crying? Because Jesus is with us. He feels our pain. This, by the way, friends, this is my God, the God that cries with us and seeing the grief that other people... I apologize, I'm having a genuine experience up here where I'm, I'm preaching at you, all right? We're going to get through this. But seeing the grief and the struggle that other people are going through, he's with them in that. And he begins to weep as well. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Isn't this Jesus? Isn't this the miracle worker? Couldn't he have prevented this? And the answer is yes, he could have. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within. Don't miss these words. Sometimes we have these, this image of Jesus as being kind of serious and stoic and reserved. This is a man who is deeply troubled in spirit, deeply moved. came to the cave, and a stone was laying against it. There he is at the tomb. And so Jesus says, verse 39, he says, remove the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, um, yeah, that's not a great idea. Lord, this is a situation, you know, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Um, there's not decomposition. Uh, there's going to be a stench. And, and Jesus, maybe you want to pay your respects, but we don't want to do this, Jesus. It's going to stink. It's a rotting corpse, Jesus. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Do you see how overt Jesus is? No, Jesus doesn't need to speak any words aloud to be heard by his Father God, but he's saying these words for the sake of the audience who's gathered there. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings around his face, his raptor with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The resurrection of Lazarus. Can you put yourself there for just a moment? I mean, I've been to a lot of funerals in my day. I've been to a lot of cemeteries. I've been to a lot of grave sites. I had never seen anything like this, and neither have you. This was the biggest miracle that Jesus had ever performed, and it was witnessed by so many people. Therefore, on account of this miracle, on account of this sign, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Of course, wouldn't you? I mean, if you were on the fence and you were skeptical about this miracle man, and all of a sudden somebody is raised from the dead after four days of being dead, four days is like a long time to be dead. That's like extremely dead. Wouldn't you put your faith in him too? And so many of the Jews did. But, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things what Jesus had done. And this is all according to God's plan. All of this is staged. Therefore, now look, let's see, okay? Here's the miracle. Let's see how the Pharisees respond. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. What are we doing here? I mean, here's what we've seen up to this point in time. There's been a lot of conversation about Jesus, but no decisions have been made. A lot of getting angry or frustrated with Jesus. And there's been a couple occasions up to this point where they've picked up stones in the heat of the moment and have attempted to stone Jesus, but he slips out of their midst. But what are we doing here? We've got no plan. We haven't made any decisions. What are we doing about Jesus? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Ain't that the truth? If we let him continue on traveling, performing miracles, teaching, raising the dead, if he keeps doing this, everybody will believe in him. No one will be able to refute it. So what's the problem with that? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Guys, it's fun to talk about the Messiah and yeah, this guy's out there and he's doing these signs. And maybe he's from God, maybe he's not. I don't know. What we do know is that we have a Roman enemy. The Romans are there. 
And we have this fragile peace. And if Rome finds out, man, can you imagine if word makes it back to Caesar? If they find out we've got a Messiah on our hands, they're going to come in and they're going to shut us down. They're going to destroy our temple, destroy our city, and kill our people if they find out. And guess what? This was a completely valid concern. Because a few decades later in 70 AD, Rome does just that. They've had enough with the Jews. They've had enough with the Israelites. And they come and destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem. So they gather together and say, we can't let Jesus keep going like this. We're afraid of Rome. But one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You guys, you fail to see the scope of this. You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Don't you guys see? We've talked about it enough. We've deliberated. We've gone back and forth. Don't you see what we need to do? We need to kill him. I mean, for the sake of preserving our nation, we need to kill this one man. Jesus performs the greatest miracle that anyone has ever seen. And the result, the response, let's kill him. Not only that, but if you keep reading, you find out there was a conspiracy to also kill Lazarus. Let's get rid of the evidence. That's how they respond. Why? The Messiah. These were the guys that were waiting for the Messiah. Why? When he shows up, do you want to kill him? Why? Because they were afraid. We got to preserve the peace. We have to maintain the status quo. And things aren't great right now. We're being oppressed by Rome and we're being taxed by Rome. And yeah, it will be great. The idea of Messiah is great, but an idea of Messiah is messy and it will probably get bloody and there'll probably be a war. So let's just preserve the peace and maintain that status quo. We're afraid of revolution. <laughs> they were afraid of revolution, a fear of change. Now let me ask you a question. This is a rhetorical question. It's also kind of a stupid question, right? They say there's no such thing as stupid questions. That's wrong. Some questions are stupid. Let me ask you a stupid question. Why doesn't everyone believe in Jesus? Right? Let me make that a more specific question. Why doesn't everyone who's been exposed to the evidence, why doesn't everyone who's been exposed to the evidence put their belief in Jesus? You might say, well, Josh, that's just it. That's the problem is that there's not enough evidence. If you could just provide more evidence, if we could see some more evidence, if we could see some more proof, then everyone would believe in Jesus, right? And if we could just get Jesus to show up on a Sunday morning in person and perform some miracles for us, maybe do a levitation thing, that'd be really cool. If we could just do that, if there's just more evidence, then people would believe. I, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Not at all. These men had all the evidence that they needed. And they rejected Jesus. It wasn't because of a lack of evidence. It's because they were afraid of the revolution. <laughs> they were afraid of change. Now, there are some people right now listening to these words that know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you listening to these words, you've done this thing with Jesus, or you've showed up at church, and you've considered Jesus, and you're polite about it, but you haven't fully committed to saying, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. You've not accepted Jesus as your Savior. Well, why not? Is it a lack of evidence? 
I mean, if it is, let's sit down. Let's have a conversation. I'm not saying I can prove anything to you, but we can look at the evidence and I can recommend some books. Is that what it is? Is that what it is that's keeping you away from acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, from recognizing Him as the Savior and receiving Him as your personal Savior? Is it a lack of evidence? I don't think that's what it is. I think, and I don't mean to offend, I think you're afraid. I think it's fear. A fear of personal revolution, a fear of change. Why is it that people stay away from Jesus? I don't think it's a lack of evidence. I think it's a fear of change. That's the biggest thing that keeps people away from Jesus. And let me just say to you, if you're someone who's struggling with that, I don't want to accept Jesus because if I accept Jesus, my life might change. If I say yes to this, if I acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, if I receive Him as my Savior, then that's going to change my life and it's going to change my priorities and it's going to change the way I spend my time and spend my money and the way I relate with other people. If that's your fear, let me just tell you, that is a valid fear. That's a valid concern because when we acknowledge the reality of who Jesus is, when we accept him as our Savior, he does change our lives. He does change our priorities. But let me tell you, that change is for the better. That change is an improvement. And so I just want to encourage you to embrace the revolution. I mean, think about it. Think about your life. Are you happy with the status quo? Let's just keep things the way that they are, right? Oh, yeah, there's some good stuff going on. There's some good stuff happening. There's things to be happy about and things to be encouraged by. But take a close look at your own life. The cycles that you're trapped in, the patterns that you come back to, the addictions that you may struggle with, are you ready to bring them to the surface and have Jesus take them away and heal and repair and restore and embrace <laughs> embrace the revolution. What do you see, Hope Community Church? What do you see when you look outward at our community? Let me talk to the members of Hope Community Church for a moment, okay? And by the way, you're a member of this church when you decide you're a member here, all right? When you've spent enough time with us, and you know what, I'm a part of this family. Let me talk to the members of Hope Community Church. What do you see when you look around at our surrounding community? What do you see in southern Delaware County? How are things? They good out there, right? There's some good stuff going on. And there's some people helping each other. And there's some things to be encouraged by. But there's a lot going on out there that's very, very ugly and very, very wrong. What do you see when you look around at our community? I'll tell you what I see. I see people struggling. I see people throwing away their lives I see people giving their lives over to addiction. I see people giving their lives over to the pursuit of wealth. I see people giving their lives over to the pursuit of comfort. I see people giving their lives over to escapism and let me just do my job and make enough money and go away for the weekend and go on vacation. I see people giving away their lives to all these worldly, temporary things, and I see too many Christians out there in our community who have chosen apathy, who have decided, I'm not going to let myself care about the lost, because you know what? Caring about people, it's difficult, 
And there are too many Christians out there in our community who are content just to show up at a church, sing a few songs, listen to a sermon, maybe show up at a Bible study. But I'm not going to let myself care about the lost because caring about people is difficult. And I just want to maintain that status quo in my own life. Is that what you see? Or is it just me? I see people who need Jesus in this community. I see people who need us, Hope Community Church. They need us to share Jesus with them. They don't know that they need us, <laughs> but they need us to share Jesus with them. Some of you have been around Hope Community Church for a long time. Have you forgotten why we're here? <laughs> Are we just a church to attract Christian people and give Christian people what they want? No. We're here for the sake of people who don't already know Jesus as their Savior. Do you realize why we're here in this community? We are here to bring about a revolution, a change, because we need to see that change here in our community. We need to see Christian people willing to let themselves care about the lost, and we need to give people who are lost the opportunity to get to know Jesus, to receive them as their Savior. That's why we're here. We are here, Hope Community Church, to start this quiet revolution. And my friends, this revolution has already begun. So let's keep at it. Let's keep sharing Jesus with other people. Let's keep making that case for Christ with the people in our lives. Let's keep inviting people to worship and to small groups. Let's keep at it because our community needs us to share Jesus with them. Amen? I invite you to stand with me as we close out our worship service in prayer. Jesus, I've been with you for a long time here. And I've lifted up so many prayers for this congregation, so many prayers for this community. Jesus, I know that we need you. We need you in Ridley. We need you in Interborough. We need you in Delaware County. We need you. We need you to change our lives. We need you to change our priorities. We need you, most of all, to save us from sin. Give us purpose and meaning in this life. And so, Father God, I pray that you would protect us, those of us who are Christians, protect us from apathy. Give us the willingness to care. Allow our hearts to break as your heart breaks. Allow us to really embrace the revolution that you desire to create in our lives. And let us share you, Jesus, with others. Let us spread this Jesus revolution with Delaware County. Father God, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to gather together as your people, to gather together as your church, to worship you. But now that this worship service is over, we pray that you would allow our worship of you to continue. Jesus, let us worship you with our lives. Let us worship you by the way that we love and serve one another, by the way that we love and serve you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.